Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna read our passage tonight. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me for the reading of God's word, we're gonna read out of Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. And I was debating on how much to read, but we're going to read the whole thing just to set the context here. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw, the, he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And he said, and they said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of, a foreign, of foreign divinities because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heavens and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gave to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made, for one, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, determined allotted periods and the boundaries to, of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance of all Assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed. Among them were, and there's a list of names I'm not going to pronounce. This is the word of God. You can be seated. All right, tonight we're back in Acts. Acts. 
uh, you know, after a week break there. And we have a few more weeks here through the book of Acts, and then we are coming right up on Advent, believe it or not. You guys ready for Christmas? Thanksgiving's first, obviously, but, but Advent is coming, and Advent is uh, just a few weeks away. We'll begin our Advent series. But tonight, I want to look at one of Paul's more well-known stories, one of the, one of the, the more well-known stories of Paul's missionary stops. At Athens, it, it, the, it, the place that we, the, that word that I struggled with there, the Aragapa, yeah, that means Mars Hill. So I'm just going to say Mars Hill for the rest of the night. But that means Mars Hill literally. And at this point, we've sort of gotten used to these little micro stories of Paul's journeys as we've gone through the book of Acts where he shows up and he, he engages certain people and, and then ultimately he gets sent on his way. Just like in previous spots, how Paul got here is by being chased out. Remember previously, he was in Berea, and he had been chased out. So previously, that, that the way we get into this, 17, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 13 and 15, says this. When the Jews from Thessalonica, so this is now the two cities ago, learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there also, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent, off, sent Paul off by the way of sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So up north, Paul was there with his missionary group, and... The agitators came, and they stirred up a crowd, and there was going to be another. Paul was on his way probably to land back in another prison cell or beaten. And so they rush him off to sea, and he takes a little short boat, short journey just down the coast to Athens. And where we pick up tonight, this is a unique scenario for Paul because he's by himself. Paul finds himself alone in Athens, apparently solo. My hope tonight, I have, to be honest, I have enough notes for two sermons. <laughs> so I'm going to try to go as fast as I can through this, and I may actually end up making it two sermons. We'll see. My goal tonight is to look at this narrative as a very unique case study of how Paul did missions in a society that's very plural, plural, pluralistic. If I could speak tonight, it would be great. Very pluralistic. Lots of different ideas and thoughts. Like we just read, the Athenians liked to, to like sit and do nothing but talk about new ideas. You guys have friends like that? Like to just talk and dream new ideas, debate random theories and ideas? Very pluralistic society. And Paul was, he, he exhibited this really versatile reach in the way that he engaged this community. He's not tied to just one way of doing the work of an evangelist. Very versatile in his missional approach. He could switch 
from being with people who knew the Old Testament and the scriptures and the synagogue to the marketplace and talking to artists and philosophers and then being brought to Mars Hill to stand before the whole city and the intellectuals and reason with them. And yet he was always proclaiming the same gospel, the same truth and reality of the good news of Jesus, regardless of which environment he finds himself in on any given situation. This account of Paul's visit here to Athens is one of the most well-known stories of Paul's missionary journeys. One of the commentators said that this brief visit, it's only 15 verses. I sat there this week, and I looked at these 15, 16 verses, and I was like, I can do this pretty quick. Nope. 15 verses. But one of the commentators says this is one of, this is like the, uh, the centerpiece of the whole book of Acts. It gives us really good insight into Paul's heart and the ministry that he had, and it really gives us a good lesson for how we can engage unbelievers. What's unique here, too, is because Paul's alone. Luke, the author here, gives us a really good insight sort of into what Paul, what he's seeing and thinking and his, where his attention is. Athens was, by the time Paul got there, Athens was sort of in this diminishing state of glory. Many, many years, centuries before, Athens was this impressive place, this impressive city of power and political authority. But by this time, Corinth had become the center of commerce, commerce and politics in Greece. Athens was, was sort of in this diminishing state. Politically, Athens was known, it was, it, it was the first democracy was developed there. It was a very important city throughout world history. The first democracy, a city-state that was ran by elected officials, was first developed in this city. Athens boasted many influential figures, figures that you would know well today that have shaped and influenced the way that we think in Western culture came from this city. Great playwrights and artists, the father of Western history came from Athens, the father of Western medicine came from Athens. And you can't talk about Athens without talking about philosophy. Socrates comes from Athens. Socrates comes from Athens. He's the father of all Western philosophy. He taught Plato, who then taught Aristotle. Both, all three of those, at some point in their life, lived in Athens. Numerous artists, great Greek artists of history, lived and came from this city. This city, this ancient Greek city, was a, a like, powerhouse, yet beginning to diminish by the time Paul gets there. The highest point of this city, of any Greek city, was this temple that was built to, to represent and to worship their, the chief god of that city, this, the high place, the Acropolis. Athens was no different. It had a necropolis that had a statue to Athena in that, that 
temple. But about 50 yards away, not very far, on a lower hill, was another place that we're going to call Mars Hill. Mars Hill is sort of the centerpiece of this story. It was a ne- Mars Hill because it was a temple built for the Greek god Mars, the Greek god of war, Mars. That's where we, we pick up our story. So even though the golden age of Athens had passed and, and really it's diminishing by the time Paul gets there, it was very much an impressive city. A city that would draw people from all over to sightsee. It was still very much still considered a cultural and intellectual center. Corinth was now the center of politics and business, but Athens was the center of culture and intellect. Athens was strikingly beautiful. I mean, still to this day, you can go and there's, there's remnants, there's, there's, there's ruins of some of these ancient buildings. <clears throat> Paul would have heard, being a Roman citizen and growing up in the region, in the, in the area, he would have heard of this majestic city since he was a boy. And as we pick up our story tonight in verse 16, he's solo wandering around this majestic city. Wandering the streets, waiting for his companions to join him. How would you respond? Has anybody ever been to Athens? I haven't, so I can't say. Or, or any of those great ancient cities, Rome? How do we respond when we see such grandeur in history? When we're confronted with overwhelming beauty... How do we respond when we see this? Athens was not just this beautiful tourist destination, but it was also a home to many, many, many idols. The home of pagan Greek philosophy. And the question is tonight, would they welcome this gospel? Would they receive it? And then how ultimately, what can we learn from this as Christians as we interact with the skeptical, intellectual environment? As we get into this tonight, my goal, we'll see how this goes. John Stott breaks this story, this this 15 verses up into four topics. We're going to try to anchor around this. What did Paul see? What did Paul see? What did he feel? Where did Paul go? And then what did Paul say? We'll see how far we can get through those tonight, okay? Each each of these points, I think, is related. What did he see? What did he feel? Where did he go? And what did he say? Each of those are related, but here's what, what John Stott says. The reason we don't, we don't speak like Paul is because we don't feel like Paul. And this is because we don't see like Paul. So my hope tonight is that we can learn something from the way Paul sees this city. What he feels when he sees this city. And then where he goes and what he says as a result to how he feels. Is with me? 
So let's jump into this. What did Paul see? Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. This is striking to me. It wasn't the history. It wasn't the beauty of the city. It wasn't the artists. It wasn't all the tourist things that probably would captivate us for weeks as we toured these beautiful cities. None of that captivated Paul, or at least that's not what Luke highlights. He could have walked around Athens as a tourist waiting for his buddies to show back up and then continue on his mission. He could have simply done Athens as a tourist would do Athens. It was a magnificent, magnificent city, the buildings and the monuments, all that, that's, some of that's still there today. He could have simply done Athens. He could have lingered around the marketplace, the many artists and painters, statesmen and philosophers. He could have just listened. Paul's not uncultured. He was an educated man. He was well, well read. We know that actually he quotes two different Greek poets in this passage. He could have just been spellbound by this immense city, the splendor of this beautiful place. He could have walked around and just looked at the architecture and been amazed. But that's not what happens. When the apostle sees here what he, he's confronted with, the things that he sees, what he's struck by is the rampant idolatry. What stands out, what he sees is the idolatry because Paul's not looking at the city of Athens as a tourist. What he's looking at the city, he's seeing it from a Christian perspective. He's seeing it from a Christian worldview. Michael Goheen defined worldview this way. It's an articulation of the basic beliefs embedded in a shared grand story that is rooted in a faith, faith commitment and gives shape and direction to the whole of our individual and corporate lives. In other words, a worldview is the set of beliefs about the most fundamental and basic things, the most fundamental issues in life, origin, meaning, morality, destiny, those things, that it's the set of beliefs around that that becomes the lens by which you see the rest of the world. And for Paul, the lens that he saw Athens through was a very biblical, Christocentric lens. He saw the world through the lens of the cross. And when we, when a person genuinely becomes a disciple of Jesus, and they're following in the way of Jesus, everything you see should change. The way you see the world should be affected by your discipleship of Jesus. Why? Because embedded in the storyline of the Bible, embedded in the storyline of Scripture, the grand narrative of the thing that we believe that gives shape to all of our life, 
is a theological set of beliefs about God and creation and humanity and sin, redemption, a kingdom. These beliefs, amongst other things, create a lens by which we see everything else. This is a storyline that shapes the way that we see the world. As a follower of Jesus, we, we enjoy many of the same things as people who don't follow Jesus, right? It's not wrong if, to go and enjoy the beauty of the city of Athens. But the way that we see it is shaped differently. Follower of Jesus, you see art differently. We see music differently, sports differently, business, ethnicity, poor, the poor, the orphans, the widows. We see the environment differently. We see money and sex and marriage and food. We see it differently. We view it through the lens of the cross. Because your worldview has changed. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. We see the world differently because we filter everything we encounter through a right perspective of God's self-revelation through the scripture and through the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. The reality is, and we know this, everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a lens by which they see the world and they make decisions. Your neighbors, your coworkers, everybody, your family, they have a worldview. They have a way that they see the world. In this story, Luke, actually, he mentions two very competing worldviews. He mentions two particular ones that were at work in the city of Athens. He mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. Two different philosophical worldviews. These groups saw the world very differently. Their opposing perspectives is, is a good reminder for us today of our neighbors who, for the most part, do not share our worldview. The Epicureans and the Stoics. The question here is we look at these two different worldviews. This is the important, the take-home of this idea of worldview. As a Christian, this is what you should be asking yourself. Is my worldview true? Is it coherent? Does it make sense? And then do I consistently apply it to everything? You can ask those three questions. When you're having these conversations with your friends about new ideas, is it true? Is it coherent? And can you consistently apply it? Does it always work? The gospel always works. The Christian worldview will always work. You can apply it to every situation. One of the things that the Christian worldview consistently reveals, and this is what happens with Paul, this is what he saw. It reveals that the world is full of idols. Underneath sin problems, underneath relational problems, underneath all the, the problems that, fa that we face in the world, there's, there's idols. 
Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, he teaches that a person, that if a person gets the first commandment, do not have other gods besides me. If a person gets that commandment right, obeying the others will follow because everything follows from the fundamental issue of worship. Ultimately, all of those other issues, there's, there's an underlying issue of worship at play. So Paul sees idols. He sees worship that is supposed to be given to the God of creation, being given to all these other things. Some historians say that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was a person. It was a city full of statues and idols, things to be worshipped. The marketplace was lined with idols. The phrase that Luke uses here, that the city was full of idols, the Greek phrase underneath there, it, it could mean it was smothered with idols, covered with idols. You couldn't walk anywhere without seeing them. And so for Paul, he sees the idols, and there is so many, the sight of so many people exchanging the glory of the Creator for a created thing. Bowing to a created thing rather than worshiping the one true Creator radically impacts Paul. So much so that he engages solo. For the most part, he doesn't do this. He always has a team with him. So he reasons with them. He witnesses. The reality is we also live in a land that is smothered with idols. There are many, many things that people give their love and affection to. There are many things that take our attention, that take our time and our affection and our money, our resources, that we, we offer as acts of worship to. An idol can be anything that we turn to when we need something that only Jesus can and should provide. Anything that you turn to instead of Jesus could be an idol. They're not just statues in shrines that you worship. They're substitute gods and functional saviors. Idols can take the form of your need for approval, your relentless pursuit of success, money, the drive for sex and pleasure and food, your all-consuming allegiance to a sports team or a political party, the pursuit of education, anything that, that consumes you could function as a competing object of worship. And followers of Jesus, we bear a responsibility to tear down these idols. To tear them down, to confront them, and to point out 
the reality that they will not satisfy. They are powerless to satisfy and meet the need that you're asking them to meet. Only Jesus can do that. Here's the question. What do you see when you drive through your city, when you drive through Santa Rosa, when you go downtown or you, you go to work? What do you see? If you're taking a drive or a bike ride for us up Chalk Hill, what do you see? Is it just beautiful county? Where do we see? What do we, well, how are we seeing through a Christian perspective? through a Christian worldview. Second thing here, what Paul felt. What Paul felt. Becoming a follower of Jesus also involves a changing of your feelings, your affections. When you belong to Jesus, the reality is we become deeply affected by the things that affect him. Isaiah 53 calls Jesus the man of suffering. The man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was acquainted with grief. Jesus, the man that we say we follow, he wept. He got enraged. Paul also speaks of his emotions in multiple places. Second Corinthians, he says that he was grieving and yet always rejoicing. Shouldn't surprise us, but I think it should challenge us to read that when Paul saw that the city was full of idols, that he was deeply distressed deeply distressed. When he saw the city of Athens through a Christian perspective, through a biblical worldview, his emotional response was distress. This word in, in from the Greek is, is kind of difficult to translate. One of the best translations could almost be a, a fit of seizures or spasms, an outburst. And some translators actually try to, to translate this as anger or rage. That Paul is angry and rage was overwhelming him. Some say that he was infuriated with the idols that he saw. I actually think that kind of misses the full tone of what's happening here. One of the best ways to understand this word is to look at its use from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, this word often gets translated as provoked. Provoked. What happens, what we see through many stories in the Old Testament, is when Israel worshipped idols. First, one of the first times this word is used is in telling the story of the golden calf. And when Israel worshipped the golden calf, they they formed this golden calf, and they worshipped, the Lord was provoked. 
that provoked a righteous anger that's mingled with love and compassion. We see it with the golden calf story. You see it later from in the way that Israel deals with Baal. You see it in the way the northern kingdom later also makes another golden calf. That the Lord is provoked. He's provoked because he wanted worship of him alone. Because he loved them. I think Paul is mixed. There's there's this mixed emotion that's happening in in Paul, just like happened to the Lord. This mixture of, of, of anger and love, compassion. Probably, you, you could almost take this word jealousy, which is another word to describe the way the Lord responds to idolatry in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, 14 says this, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Jealousy is one of those words that kind of has a, like we, we feel like jealousy is a bad thing. But at its core, jealousy simply means the resentment of rivals. Resentment of rivals. And whether it's a good thing or a bad thing sort of depends on whether that rival has any business being there. Let me explain this for a second. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine your artistic ability or your athletic ability or your beauty, that's sinful. That's sinful because you cannot claim a monopoly on talent or or skill or ability or beauty. You have no business claiming that. However, to be jealous of someone who, who uh, a third party, let's say, who enters a marriage, jealousy in that, that context, that person has no business being there. And in that context, jealousy is righteous. It's actually good. The, the intruder in that situation has no business being there. And that's the context that we see that word jealousy being used of God. It's the same with God. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Our creator, our redeemer has the right to your exclusive allegiance. He has the right to demand exclusive allegiance from you. And he's jealous, the scripture says, if we transfer that or give it to anyone or anything else. With that in mind, I think it's also appropriate for us as followers of this God, Jesus, to feel that sense of jealousy when others do the same to share in that jealousy. It's like the prophet Elijah in the time of the nation's apostasy when the the nation of Israel is is not walking with the Lord. 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah says this, 
I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. He's distressed that God's honor was being profaned. It's provoked. Paul, similarly in 2 Corinthians, says he feels a divine jealousy for them. He longed for them to remain loyal to Jesus because he had betrothed them to Jesus. So this pain, this jealousy, this provocation that Paul is feeling in Athens... It's not just a bad temper. Paul's not just angry. It's not just pity for for them because of their ignorance. It's a fear for their salvation. The reality of their eternity stands before him. The reality that they are offering worship to things that do not have any business receiving worship. Paul had a complete and total hatred for anything that would come before the glory and honor of his God. Like an Old Testament prophet, Paul was zealous for God's name. He was jealous to see God alone worshipped. But it's important not to overstate that. Because we have to look at how does Paul actually engage them in Athens? Does he bring the hammer? Does he start destroying the temples and the idols? Does he break out the sledgehammer? Verse 17 says that he reasoned with the people. The posture that he engages with them is gentle and compassionate. The speech that he gives in Mars Hill, it represents a a certain aspect of respect for the people, even in massive disagreement. I think there's a lesson here in the state of our hearts. If our engagement with the lost, if our lives don't reflect both the sweetness and the thunder of the truth of God, you'll either be a coward or you'll be obnoxious. As believers, we need both gentleness and boldness. We need grace and we need truth. And we need to constantly be balancing the way that we engage the lost through those two sides of things. No one displayed that combination better than Jesus. He rebuked people boldly, publicly, openly, but he was also gentle. We need Paul and Jesus' commitment here to grace and truth. If we struggle with this, if we find ourselves struggling... If we can't cultivate our feelings, 
correctly, then we need to spend time meditating on Jesus. Just spend some time looking at the way Jesus engaged the people. Jesus had an absolute commitment, total 100% commitment to perfect holiness. And yet we see in Jesus complete compassion for sinners. The more we think about the cross, the more this will grow in our lives. The more we meditate on the person and the work of Jesus, this will grow in our lives. Grace and truth. Tenderness and tears. Truthfulness and tears. Gentleness and boldness. Holiness and love. That's why I think Paul saw the world differently and felt differently. His entire world was shaped by the cross of Jesus. Everything he did and saw and acted on was shaped by the work of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Jews seek a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, and we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where'd Paul go? Luke records three different places, and we're going to end with where Paul went tonight. Three different places that Paul went the synagogue, the marketplace, and then Mars Hill. He initially goes to the first two places, and then he's taken, dragged to Mars Hill. Let's look at the synagogue real quick. Verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. This was his custom. We've looked at this now for several weeks. Paul goes into a new city. He finds the synagogue. There's an established Jewish community here. He goes there and he finds those who are familiar with the Old Testament. And Paul reasons with them from the scripture. He explains and he proves that Jesus was the Messiah. This is his custom. This is important because often we find ourselves in similar situations where we are with people who are familiar with the story of God, familiar with the scriptures. If you do anything around the church, we find ourselves in this situation. And I can tell you many, many times that I've had conversations with people who have been in the church for years and they don't actually know the gospel. The encouragement here, the synagogue, Paul always goes there and he engages the scriptures in a way that brings them to the gospel. People might know the stories. They might have the right Christian language. They might be in the culture. We still have an obligation to bring the gospel. Because the gospel should be on our lips and our tongues and our conversations. We should be talking about the gospel. Because there's a really good chance there's people that don't know it. 
Many call themselves Christians but don't actually know the gospel or live out its implications. Second place he went, the marketplace, and dialogued with people in general. 17. Every day he went to the marketplace and dialogued with those who happened to be there. In the marketplace in this culture, it was a place of commerce and public dialogue. Paul engages with them. He didn't just wait for the Sabbath to come and sit in the synagogue. He actually went every day, day by day, and he mixed it up with the people in the, the marketplace. The reality is I don't think we have a really good e- modern example of what Paul's marketplace, what this marketplace was. Maybe it's social media. I don't know. This, this was a, the marketplace contained, it was an all-encompassing place of the town officials deliberating, artists creating, business people making deals, the media reporting, philosophers philosophizing. All that was happening in the marketplace. Everything happened there. It was the the center of the city. And Paul would go there day by day, and he would reason with whoever was there. He would bring his faith publicly and out in the open. He would engage anybody who would hear. He would engage them in a dialogue. The idea here is to take our faith. This is the lesson that we draw out from here. We need to take our faith into the everyday rhythms of our life. Your marketplace, the schools that you take your kids to, the gas station, the cafes that you go to, the grocery store, the sporting events that you're, you're at with your kids, or enjoying the concerts you go to, whatever it is, That's the marketplace. And the ordinary rhythms, the regular things that we do through our lives, do we see them through a lens of the gospel? Do we see them through the lens of the cross? Do we engage them? Do we feel the way Jesus feels in those moments? The mundane, regular rhythms of our life. We can take the gospel on our walks around our neighborhoods to our work environment, picnics, hikes, wherever you're doing, whatever you're doing, being intentional with the good news of Jesus. Second thing he, second group that he engaged in the marketplace was the intellectual skeptics. Two different groups of philosophers that he engaged And he reasoned with them. He spent time dialoguing with them. So much time that they called him a name. They called him a babbler. That idea of a babbler is of a bird that picks up a thought. A bird that picks up seed and just drops it. That's, That's the word behind that word. The idea behind that word. 
they couldn't understand what Paul was saying because they didn't have categories for it. And so they bring him to Mars Hill and ask him. And I'm going to save all that for next week. I'm going to save all that. The thing I want to leave us with tonight is how are we seeing our city? How do you feel? Do we see it through the lens of the gospel? Do we see it through the lens of the cross? Are we provoked when we see the glory of our creator exchanged for the created things, as Romans says? When we see our friends and and coworkers and community, when we see them worshiping effectively worthless things, are you provoked? Does that challenge you? Does that move you to prayer? Does it move you to share the gospel? Does it move you to talk about Jesus? We're going to go into communion actually right now. I just want to do this together as we think about this because that's the point of this meal. That's part of the reason we do communion week after week is to remind us of the work of Jesus on the cross. That as we come together as followers of Jesus, as we come together as disciples of Jesus, that we constantly remind ourselves of the story of a Savior who laid everything down, who willingly went to the cross. And because of that, the book of Revelation says he is worthy of it all. He is worthy of all praise and all glory and all worship. And it should provoke us like it provoked Paul when we see that glory exchanged for something else. It should challenge us. So as we go to the table tonight, we're going to go ahead and do, we'll do one song. Band can come back up. Band, these two guys can come up. We'll do one song and we'll take it together. But I just want you, as they're playing this next song, I want you to remind yourself that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy because he was slain, the book of Revelation says. John's looking. He's in this vision, book of Revelation. There's none worthy to open the scrolls. So John weeps loudly. They stop him and say, Do not weep, for there is one worthy, the the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slain lamb is worthy. Jesus is worthy. He has accomplished total and complete victory in the work of the cross. So as we just go into this next song, I want you to think about that, and we will take communion after this next song together. Let's go and worship.